Hi there. Today, I want to talk about how the demands of elite football has seen the evolution of football oppositions, roles and systems on the pitch. From flying fullbacks to sweeper goalkeepers, from midfield virtusos to the present-day register, the ball-playing centre-halves and the death of the classic number 10. Today, we'll discuss how all of that is changing the emphasis at academy levels in Africa and all around the world. We've got a nicely assembled panel today. Two coaches who, aside football, share a thing or two in common. Shegwan Deni of Daria Sports, he also holds a UFRC license, and Adeshegun Shola of the Barcelona Academy here in Lagos. Both are debutants on the podcast, and we've also got African football writer Solis Chuku, who goes by the alias The Odd Solis. I go by the name UB Ndwonofit, and I'll be your host. Gentlemen, a very warm welcome to the Hindsight Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. And also a pleasure to have our very esteemed listeners. In case you're joining us for the first time, please subscribe to the Hindsight Podcast on Google and Apple Podcasts. It's good to have uh, each and every one of you. I wanted to talk about how the demand of, uh, you know, elite football has, you know, seen the evolution of a couple of football positions as we used to know it. Rewind 20 years ago, some of the positions that we saw in football has evolved so much that we haven't had a chance to take a breath and talk about those positions as it applies to um, everyday football nowadays. So I, myself and, and Wale were thinking about uh, a few ideas and I, I, th- I thought this is probably the best break we have to maybe analyze those systems and what has led to a change in, in those, those positions. So it's good to have each and every single one of you here. I'm going to start with uh, Solis because... I know Solis. Uh, I see Solis more than any one of you. Solis, it's good to have you here. Good to be here, Yubi. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's going to be an interesting discussion. I from what you I, from what you already said. I look forward to it. Yeah, I totally believe so. Uh, it's also good to have Shola. Shola, I met Shola back in 2017, and uh, I think it was very very it was a very explosive conversation. I think he remembers the conversation properly. I wanted to do some coaching badges at the time, but. I realized that uh, life had other ideas. <laughs> Shola, it's good to have you. Same, lovely to be here. To be a fun chat, yeah. But it's also good to have Shegun. Shegun is a UEFA C license coach. And I've spoken to Shegun a couple of times now. And I've loved every bit of a conversation with her. Shegun, it's good to have you also. Thank you very much for having me, Yusha. Fantastic. So I, I wanted to start start off with, um, you know, some of the roles that have, you know, taken a huge a surgical incision and you know like in every sport the nfl um nowadays wants quarterbacks to pass the ball a bit but i'm not sure if you watch a lot of nfl the uh, nba uh, the big men as we used to know them uh, are encouraged now to you know get a get away from the rim a bit more and do a bit more so it's not just speculative football that roles have been redefined but you know it's across all sports so let's start off with um asking you what role would you say has had the biggest, you know, surgical incision? Which role has taken the biggest evolution over the last 20 years? 20 years will leave us at 2000. Yeah. I'm going to start with Solis. Okay. Um, I, I rather thought you were going to start with the coaches, but okay. Um, over the last 20 years, uh, I would say perhaps the biggest jump um, in terms of responsibility on the pitch um, for footballers has to be defenders. Um, We've seen a lot of people bemoan the fact that now the art of defending is dead and, and more and more um, central defenders are required to do more with the ball. And yeah. that has also led to an evolution whereby they tend to, uh, they are more rudimentary um, 
characteristics are kind of sidelined now, you know, tackling, positioning, um, anticipation, and all of that, those have kind of been subtly um, shifted to the side a little bit, and there's more of a premium placed on the ability to bring the ball out of defense, um, to pass over longer distances and all of that. So I would say that's, for me, the um, role on the pitch that has most been influenced by modern football and the changes in um, practical understanding and um, thinking in the football sphere. Well, that, that's quite interesting because I would have imagined that I would have mentioned the, the goalkeeping roles because personally, I think the goalkeepers have had a, the biggest change and uh, I'm not quite sure if the coaches agree. I'm going to bring you uh, both in very shortly. Uh, I think it was in the late 90s when the goalkeepers, um, so this makes a great point with defenders. We're going to touch on that shortly. In the late 90s, goalkeepers were allowed to take a back pass, you know, pick up a back pass. And I think somewhere in the early 2000s, that changed. And, you know, goalkeepers were not allowed to pick up a back pass again. 92, actually. 92, actually, right. Um, that, in my opinion, almost redefined the goalkeeping role because goalkeepers needed to be a bit more um, technical on the ball, needed to be a bit more athletic and aware and whatnot. Uh, would you agree uh, with Solis in the fact that the defenders have been, in his opinion, the ones who have faced the biggest change? Um, I think goalkeepers have, have seen the biggest. I think, I think there's, there's an argument for both. I, I mean, it depends on what you look at in terms of the biggest change. Uh, in terms of defenders coming out and playing with the ball, it's new, but at the same time, it's not so new. In terms of revolutions of players, like um, the roles of different players, you can see that um, right now we're almost at like a, a stalemate. I mean, this is a very, very subjective opinion because a lot of people will look at different things as change. But over the years, football evolution hasn't been so drastic. I think the biggest change in the last 20 years will probably be Pep Guardiola inverting fullbacks because everything else, has pretty much been done. In terms of defenders playing with the ball, if you look at the times of um, Rhinos Mikkel and Johan Cruyff, where they had total football, where every player could play every role. Um, you had defenders popping up in the centre half. You had strikers being the, playing as centre-backs at some point, And the entire shape of the team just staying the same. Um, mm. I think what's happening now is a lot of managers are looking back in history and picking one or two things and saying, oh, I like that from that point in history and I'm going to use that to redefine um, how my team is playing. And the way tactics evolve as well, you know, in the last 20 years, we've seen the dominance of 4-3-3, we've seen the dominance of 4-4-2, we've seen the dominance of 3-5-2, we've seen the dominance of 4-2-3-1. And in itself, it, it makes different coaches look for different advantages. So that's why you would see now there's also like the center forward role is also adapting a lot. Um, you have, but again, all these things are, are things that you can look back in history and still find them. You have players right. like Messi and, right. and um, players like Messi and um, what's his name? Um, oh, Firmino in Liverpool that okay. are, are um, now the false nine but again that is something that came from the past it's not something that was invented in the last 20 years mm. so again we're always going to be evolving but always with just a mm. little bit of of um a little bit of nod to the past but for mm. me the biggest change 
so far, I would say would be um, the inverted fullbacks because that is something that I think Pep brought in and it's become like a a new wave that not a lot of people have adapted. Right, to this right, way. right. Okay. But I think it's something that could have a significant impact going forward. Right. In, in terms uh, of teams that want to dominate possession. Sorry. Fantastic. I, I want to talk to. I want to talk about the, the goalkeepers because I wanted to start from the back end. Uh, build forward. Um, myself and uh, Solis were on a podcast uh, sometime last year and we were trying to rank uh, the top 20 uh, football players uh, in the last uh, decade. Um, was it the last decade, Solis? Yes, it was. was right, it 15 right. Years, something like, not 15 like years, thereabout. And um, we stumbled on a couple of uh, tough decisions and Solis made a very uh, glowing uh, uh, statement about Manuel Neuer and how, you know, a lot of goalkeepers um, the, how the role has evolved is down to the way he started playing the game. I want to talk to Shola about that because we're going to start off with the goalkeeping positions. Uh, goalkeepers were fundamentally, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, if you play football on the streets, uh, the kid who got picked last, right, uh, in a set or anything was the one who would get tossed in goal, right? And that was because, I mean, whatever... That, that was down to we don't know, but basically my opinion it was because uh, you're not so good where you can just you know stay and go. But the emphasis <laughs> <be>. has <laughs> the emphasis <laughs> has, has has kind of changed now. And to be a goalkeeper at edit level, you've got to be absolutely one of the calmest, most um, conscious and composed you know persons on the pitch. Um, why do you think that? Why do you think that change occurred, uh, Shola? Well, I think uh, Shego has mentioned a bit of it. There's the influence of certain managers. A manager can come at a particular time with his idea, and if the person becomes very successful with it, there's a tendency for a lot of people to begin to copy that idea. Even if, like uh, Shego also mentions, the idea doesn't have to be completely new or innovative. It can be simply bringing back an old idea. So, uh, for goalkeepers, I feel like even in the 90s, we had goalkeepers that could play with their feet. We always had guys like uh, Van der Sar was very good with his feet. Uh, Lehman at Arsenal, good with his feet as well. But Pep Guardiola's football at Barcelona kind of drew a lot of attention to it. It kind of became, rather than one or two guys here and there, every manager now wants their goalkeeper at least to be able to make passes and keep the ball under some level of pressure. So mm. I think the influence of Guardiola makes it a bit more amplified. And there's a lot more people now that can okay, now believe that goalkeepers must be able to play like an outfield player. Mm. Uh, fantastic. Because I wanted to uh, also uh, mention... Uh, the, uh, the the Pep Guardiola system at Barcelona is it almost the, the turning point for for football players and goalkeepers because we're talking about them at the moment that the, the success of that Barcelona team ensured that um, goalkeepers had to start developing in a in a different level because if you juxtapose that to Spain's dominance uh, between 2008 to 20 to 2012, Iker Casillas. Would you say he was the 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 kind of goalkeeper who could play out from the back, uh, Solis? I think I think Casillas was just as competent as um, perhaps not to the level of Manuel Neuer, of course, and some of or the, Victor Valdez. Um, yes, uh, but um, he always had the advantage of Valdez that he was um, 
he was more experienced. Um, he had more cachet with the players and um, he was also a better shot stopper, really. So um, he kind of fit into the system as well. I, I think it's interesting what, um, what Shola said about uh, people responding to successful teams by copying them. Um, the success of Barcelona under Guardiola prompted, of course, copycats. You know, people wanted um, to have goalkeepers that could play, but also it it was it also came as a sort of adaptation because other teams were like, okay, apart from playing out from the back, another thing that defined Barcelona was pressing. So if you're going to face a lot of pressure, you also have to be able to respond. So it was both an attempt to copy Barcelona and an attempt to adapt against Barcelona to respond to what Barcelona were doing in terms of their pressing as well. Mm, yeah, fantastic uh, opinion because uh, the, the pressing game is something uh, you don't only um, give out, you've got to also uh, accept that. Um, I also wanted to talk about the, uh, the number 10 role, which is uh, one of the positions that, in my opinion, uh, aside the goalkeeping positions, has seen the biggest uh, evolution and, uh, in my opinion, it's been a decline. But before we go on to that topic, um, at academy levels, because we have uh, coaches uh, on, on the broadcast today, how is that affecting academies across uh, Nigeria? Is, that, is there a consciousness from coaches like yourself, uh, goalkeeper trainers, uh, to make sure that the emphasis on picking a goalkeeper to progress in his career is now being made, or the decision to pick a goalkeeper is now being made off the fact that you're comfortable with the ball? Is that a conscious thing? Is that something you are clearly looking for at the moment over the shot-stopping skills and whatnot? Uh, Shegu. Uh, uh... I think Solis and John have said very, very good things about, first, I, I definitely agree with the fact that um, it's not only, it's, yes, it starts with a copy, but as well, it's also, it's also responding to what's going on out there in the world. I think as gra- grassroots developers and trainers, there's the expectation that we're trying to build the the next Messi's and the next Manuel Neuer's and the next um, the Stegians. But the truth is that we need to focus on the principles. That's the basic principles of play. Meaning for a goalkeeper, they need to be able to stop shots. They need to be able to get down low. They need to be able to focus on their first block and their second block. Those things are still the main principles that goalkeepers have to adapt. Mm. But over the last few years, you see that a lot of developing uh, grassroots developers now, or coaches like myself and John, we see the importance in, um, because before, back in the day, when, uh, when I started coaching, everywhere I worked, it was the same. The first team is training, or let me not say first team, because we're looking at grassroots football, but the outfield players are training, and then the goalkeepers are, are somewhere else <laughs> doing their own thing. But mm. what has evolved now, thanks to, obviously, um, when you look at Pep and everything Pep has done, and obviously Ajax as well, because Ajax have been doing this for ages, is integrating those goalkeepers into more um, scenarios, into more small-sided games, into the rondos, into getting them comfortable playing with their teammates. So, yeah. Because a lot of people still don't do that. So I don't think it's a, it's a conscious effort that coaches worldwide have accepted, but I think it's something a few coaches are looking at and saying, look, it's an advantage for our goalkeepers to get this um, skill set. So mm. you know, why not? Why not involve them in the rondos? Why not focus on developing their passing? Mm. and ball control and first touch and all of that. Mm. Shall I, I mean, is, is that something you look at with the Barcelona Academy? You coach one of the uh, age-grade teams there. When you 
let's say your goalkeeper at the moment. I'm not quite sure if you're allowed to speak about your players. Managers get a lot of stick for <laughs> speaking about their players nowadays in the media. Uh, but um, is that something that you're consciously looking at over um, the basic uh, skills of a, of, a, of a goalkeeper, shot stopping, reflexes, getting down low, blocking shots, first shot, second shot, and whatnot, like uh, Shegun has uh, rightly mentioned? Um, because we've seen that it is still important to still be fundamentally a goalkeeper first. Claudio Bravo in his first season at City uh, showed that clearly uh, with all his prowess, you know, playing with the ball at his feet, couldn't quite uh, keep the ball out of the net. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I'm not so sure it's a thing of uh, one over another. Yes, uh, for some of us coaches now within him, but we still have situations where that now demands that you still have to have personal time. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's about finding the balance between both. You want to add something to their game, yes, but you don't want it to be at the detriment of their fundamental goalkeeping skills. Mm. When you think about uh, the test against the Madonoya, Alisson, who's at Liverpool, there's a young generation of goalkeepers uh, uh, coming up. Uh, Jano Black, you know, is one of the goalkeepers who... For for all the the praise goalkeepers get for playing out with their feet, he's not necessarily the the most. I don't think he's the most uh, comfortable playing out with his feet. Um, I think David De Gea also falls into that category where he's showing nowadays that it is still possible to be a top level goalkeeper by still knowing the fundamentals. Um, I want to talk about Andre Onana, who's uh, uh, playing for Cameroon. Does he strike you as a goalkeeper that? You know, potentially could make that big leap to to a top level. Do you see those qualities in him? Because he's African, and you know, a couple of years from now, African players would be uh, goalkeepers would be looking at him and thinking, you know, we want to be the next uh, Andrew Nana and whatnot. What what is his biggest trait uh, as a goalkeeper, Solis? I think Onana is someone that you would consider classically trained in the Ajax style. He's good with the ball at his feet. He's a great passer. Very composed under pressure. Um, I would say for me, his biggest quality and one that has um, stood him out is uh, his his ability to take risks. I, I've, um, of course, when you're a goalkeeper, taking risks comes with um, a bigger, a bigger danger when, when it comes to, you know, what might happen when you do, but he's one that has never shied away from that. He's, um, he's very, he's, very cocksure of himself, really. and that's a good trait for a goalkeeper because you want you want that little bit of um, assurance in your own ability and what you can do, and also you need to be able to absorb mistakes when they happen and keep your head up and keep going. So I think he's. Um, I, I don't know how much of an influence he will have on African goalkeepers, really, because what he does now at Ajax is as a result of what Ajax requires him to do. He's been trained to play that way. That is the football they seek to play. That is the way they seek to develop. So, uh, and really what he does is not, I don't want, it's not so much of a new thing now. It's something that is almost required in football. So it's not, it's not a, it's not going to be a quantum leap for anyone. It's not going to be like a eureka moment for African goalkeepers to look at. Say, oh yeah, this is possible. Maybe in the way that someone like Thomas Nkono in the 90s, um, in the 80s and 90s was like a revelation for, for many goalkeepers, not just in Africa, but in the world. But he's a very competent goalkeeper. He has all the all what is needed for the top level of football. Like I said, he's comfortable on the ball. And he's also 
a good shot stopper. So he's found that balance that um, Shola talked about right there. He has a good mix. So it will be interesting to see how he how he progresses in his career. Of course, there is the other element, which is that African goalkeepers, although I don't think that's under the purview of this podcast, African goalkeepers tend to have this stigma attached to them. But I think he's done enough now that he's, he'll be able to overcome that and move to a bigger level. Fantastic. Uh, great great thoughts on goalkeepers, guys. Uh, we've got to uh, pick up the pace now and move on to uh, the number 10. Because I wanted to talk about uh, that role, uh, because it's a role that, as as kids, uh, was very dear to our hearts. We all wanted to wear the number 10 shirts and whatnot. Um, however, in the last couple of years, you know, <laughs> in the last couple of years, that, that number has... Um, still has its significance, maybe not as much, but the role itself isn't as marketable and as um, glamorous as it used to be back in the day. You know, kids nowadays would never know what um, having a number 10 jersey in the team, um, what what importance it, 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 it is. And perhaps the best place to, to begin is uh, from the 2002 World Cup, where it probably, in my opinion, is the biggest example of of how number 10s could be devastating. Rivaldo with Brazil at the time. Uh, you had Ronaldinho, uh, who was uh, tearing defenses apart. Um, fast forward a couple of years, uh, um, you know, after that, you know, 2004, uh, you had uh, people like Deco, who was, uh, you know, strutting his stuff for, for Portugal in the final against Greece and whatnot. If you move on to 2008, then, you start to see a, a steady decline in the importance and in the demand for players like, you know, J.J. Okocha, who was a, a classic uh, number 10 who could do uh, the creative work. You know, you could talk about players like um, Dennis Beckham, who executed that role for uh, the Arsenal. Many players, you know, who come into uh, the picture. What do you think it has that, that has been down to? Is that, is that been down to the lack of quality coming through from players like that? Or a change in system has just totally moved away the emphasis from, you know, the importance of having a number 10 player in your team. I like the fact that you mentioned a couple of these players. And um, there's one thing that we need to, to understand in terms of players and player roles is that a lot of the, um, a lot of the shifts is still down to the way tactics evolve. You look at someone like Dennis Beckham, for instance, that you mentioned. Uh, Dennis Beckham was, came up in the Ajax 4-3-3 system. So a lot of his development, he played, um, he played either out wide or he played in central areas. And then he moved to Inter Milan, where the system changed. And he became, he became almost a, a, a striker. He was like a shadow striker playing two center forwards up front, and they were all alone. Then he went to Arsenal, and then again he rediscovered himself. And then those positions for him, for instance, whether he played with Arsenal or he played with Holland, he always changed. And you look at Zidane and how his own system changed. And you look at Ronaldinho, for instance, who sometimes for AC Milan, for instance, played in the middle. For Barcelona, played out wide. Look at Lionel Messi as well. So you can look over the years and see that at the end of the day. What it really comes down to is the system, right? What we're seeing right now is a dominance of, uh, again, this is a subjective opinion, but we're looking at a lot of teams going back to play um, with three at the back, playing 3-5-2 or 3-4-3, three, three, 
you have a lot of teams playing 4-3-3, you have a lot of teams playing, um, looking at Simeone, for instance, playing 4-4-2. What is slightly phasing out that was in, was a little bit dominant towards the 2000s, 2010, was the 4-2-3-1 that always had a traditional number 10, someone in the home. Right. Um, look at someone like um, Muller now, who has redefined the role, where it's now, it's not, the way the role is evolving, they're not thinking of it as a position. It's more as how do we interpret the space, that mm. space. So you see that the classic number 10s, they are now drifting into different positions, but they are, in a sense, doing some of the same thing. So, um, so look, basically, I mean, I, I wanted to throw in this. Um, if you had a Rivaldo uh, today, you had a JJ Okocha, um, what you have today in the interpretation of the 4-3-3 system is that you have, um, say, a player like David Silva playing uh, in central midfield, but of course, um, drifting out uh, to the, to the you know, just shuffling, basically. Um, I wanted to go to the Spain's uh, 2008 team where you had Andres Iniesta, uh, who just started to terrorize uh, the football world and, and David Silva playing you know, as wide midfielders and you had Xavi and Marcos Senna playing as central midfield. If you go back to the 20, um, 2010 World Cup, where you had Mr. Ozil, classic number 10, devastating uh, for, for his team. Why has a player like Mr. Ozil suffered, with, even with his clear, clear quality? A player like Juan Mata, who was Chelsea's player of the year for, for two consecutive seasons, playing in that number 10 role. Um, why has the system not found a place for players like that? You know, so if you had Rivaldo today, would you put him, you know, would you not have a place for Rivaldo in your team? Um, I think... I think the main reason why those those particular set of players have suffered the most is one, um, is the teams they play in. Um, I think it's unfortunate that someone like Juan Mata, who left um, who left Chelsea as um, such a significant player, and then you look at who came in. It was player of the year. Then Mourinho comes in, and then Mourinho looks at the system, and Mourinho looks and says, "Oh, this is not the." the type of player that would fit into my own system. Although Mourinho also played the 4-2-3-1 at the time. Yeah, Mourinho I mean, was... What was him? was 4-2-3-1. Exactly. Mourinho was... His, the qualities he was looking for were very, very different. And I think someone like Mata and, and someone like Mata and Mezu Ozil, what they suffer from is, again, this is a subjective opinion, is more of a lack of physical powers that has dogged a lot of number 10s over the years. And I just feel it's not like the team, it's not like there's no space for them in the world. I just feel like the teams they found themselves in recent seasons just don't suit their style of play. Shala, would you agree with that? Um, more or less a bit, but I would also like to probably go on a slightly different tangent. Firstly, from your question, if I do have a Rivaldo, I think I have to find space for him in the team, yes? Because the quality is immense. Which brings me to the first angle that I will look at it from is the fact that I feel like we coaches have done a lot of damage to the number 10s. Because if you look at the old number 10, they seem to be very maverick players. Players who could dribble a lot. We had uh, Rivaldo, like you mentioned, JJ Okocha, Ray Costa, these are players that a lot of them 
their primary strength was their dribbling ability. And if you are going to develop a good, high-quality dribbling ability, it means throughout your childhood, you dribbled as much as possible. Hmm. But with the advent of a lot of youth coaching, you have a situation where because we demand a... Ah, you have to pass the ball, you have to pass the ball. These players dribble less. Meanwhile, the previous number 10s mostly got their dribbling ability from playing street football, where they didn't have any coach shouting on them to pass the ball. So basically, they, they had, they were, that environment of free play helped them to develop exceptional dribbling ability. That mm. the new modern attacking midfielders that developed in academies did not develop because mm. they had coaches basically demanding that they pass the ball. So I think right. that's the first aspect to it. And then the second aspect to it is more of like a general evolution of tactics. Uh, Pep Guardiola kind of decimated a lot of people, forced a lot of teams to become very, very compact. Mourinho, Simeone, people became very compact. And that compactness reduced the amount of space that number 10s had to operate in. If you check 90s videos, you see guys like Zidane receiving the ball in the center of the pitch with a lot of space to start driving at players. Those kind of spaces don't exist in modern football again. So it means starting from guys like Zidane, JJ Okocha, we evolved to guys like Ozil and Mata, who are still number 10s, but now maybe their biggest skill set wasn't their dribbling ability, it was their ability to find space. But now the space has still shrunk even further. So even they, to some extent, are also still struggling. So I see a situation where for a while, the number 10 position might be phased out a bit, but we are still going to come back to it in the future of football. Because mm. at the end of the day, these things move in cycles. Mm. What kind of number 10 would you call um, Andres Iniesta then? Or would you call him a number 10, if at all, Solis? Uh, okay, Gavit Silvers of this world. Um, I mean, you can you can answer the question. Why not? Unless so, let's go. I'm sure I can. <laughs> well, um, I think when you're looking at a player like players like Iniesta and Silva, I think you can see that through the course of their career, they've they've shown a great degree of adaptability in terms of the roles they can fulfill on the pitch. Uh, for much of his time playing for Barcelona. Iniesta functioned as, as a number eight. Uh, but really, like Shola said, the way Barcelona played, the way Pep Guardiola set up Barcelona to play really influenced a lot of teams to become a lot more compact. So it's almost like, in that sense, he was ahead of the curve. He played no you know, static number 10. He had players who could occupy that zone um, dynamically, depending on... Um, what part of the pitch the ball was in. And that gives an advantage to players who can operate in different areas of the pitch. Iniesta could play a little deeper. He could move out wide. He could slow him into the middle and combine with, um, you know, Messi dropping dropping from the front a little bit. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's even appropriate to say what kind of number 10 they are. I mean, you don't want, I don't think it's right to limit a player like, Iniesta or a player like David Silva, for that matter. We've seen Silva before Guardiola came to Manchester City. Most people thought of him as just a number 10. So the, the discussion then was between him and Kevin De Bruyne, who would play as a number 10. But then, hey, Pep gets there and they're both number eights now, as um, De Bruyne likes to point it, free eights. 
So right. um, yeah. Very um, fantastic. If, if if I can just yeah, why not go for say it? Say something real quick. Um, I, I agree with what both of you have said. I mean, Shalai, you're very right because we've even discussed this in private about um, this fixation that a lot of you coaches have on developing the same players. And um, oh, you're not a coach. Oh, <laughs> 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 um, yeah, and we've. We, we know for a fact that we, um, we need to do better. We need to encourage players. We need to allow them to discover themselves. If Messi was, if we put those shackles on someone like Messi, he won't be the player he is today. Um, where I, I, I have a slightly different opinion is the fact that compactness is what is, is killing the number 10 role. The reason I say that is compactness is not necessarily new. Compactness has always been, well, not always, but since the time of Arigusaki, we saw a, a huge emphasis on teams being more compact. We saw the likes of, from the 90s to the early 2000s, we saw the likes of Mourinho, Wenger, um, Benitez, a number of coaches that started to think more of the fact that they need to restrict the distances between the three major lines, which is the defense, the midfield, and the strikers. But in a sense, that was able to help us discover a new type of number 10, which was the, um, there's no name for it, to be fair, except from the name Mula calls himself, the Rodumeta, or I don't know how to pronounce that. Where, <laughs> yeah, where they, they, now it's more of finding those spaces, even in the compactness. You mm. see, there are a lot of those players now that... Is that, is that, is that what Frank Lampard he, was? Well, not exactly, because Van Plappert, he operated in the same space. But mm. then again, that's why I said, it, I think it's more of the space than the position. Because in recent times, you see that Firmino, for instance, before he became a, a false nine, that was his role. You see a lot of these players that just pop up in those little pockets and they score a goal and everybody's like, how do they do that? You see Dele Ali, for instance, that is doing that. You see... Um, I don't know if you remember when Mitchell came into the Premier League. That was his role previously. So it's, I think, the, yes, I agree that, you know, the classic number 10 is going to come back because formations are going to shift. But I think even today, there's that, there's that space for those players to be able to express themselves, but mm. under the right system, I think. So um, just to wrap up on the, on the number 10 conversation, if you have any um, opinions, you can chip it in. Uh, wh where would JJ Okocha play in, um, in a team today? Let's say, let's pick a Manchester City team, for example. Uh, where, where would he fit in? I don't think one anyone of would like my answer. answer. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'd like to hear it. Uh, I think he will be on the bench, but uh, when he does play... <laughs> When he does play, he would, I would see um, JJ for a Man City team, probably either one of the number eights, as he said, or maybe on the flank, maybe. Mm. Would you agree with that, Solis? Yeah, the, I, I have a whole other hang up with JJ in that I, I genuinely don't consider JJ a number 10. Uh, I think he was. Um, I think he'd be a very good number eight for this Manchester City side, but not as a starter, obviously, because um, he always had issues with the decision making and his 
tactical discipline. So I, I think Guardiola would end up beating me over the head with something. <laughs> but yeah, definitely as a number eight, that's really the ideal position for him, right. as far as I'm concerned. And the JJ had problems with Sam Allardyce because he, <laughs> so I can imagine Pep losing it, going crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's interesting when when JJ signed for Bolton. He one of the things he pointed out was that Samaradice insisted that JJ had to take more responsibility. It's something that came up over and over again in interviews that JJ needs to take more responsibility. So I think that goes to show that that's something Allardyce had to deliberately drum into him and into his consciousness for for us to see a side of JJ that was a little more restrained. And of course, there was the fact that physically he was. On the decline by that point, but yeah, right. Um, so I mean, in, in the end, I, I always want to tie uh, tie it back to how we're setting up uh, our academies and you know, getting footballers uh, up in Africa. In in your opinion, as a, as a journalist and and two coaches on the, on the broadcast today, would you say that um, maybe because of the under coaching and the the level of uh, under information the players are getting at this point in time, you know, we can return. Africa could be a potential uh, destination where you could have that classic number 10 evolve from again. Do we still have players like that on the ground because you see them all the time? Um, I, would say, I would say one thing about African football development. Um, personally, I have my own subjective views of how we develop players in Nigeria. Let me, let me restrict this to Nigeria so I don't, I don't offend anyone. I think, first of all, for us to ever get back to... For us to get those players, the players like Okocha and uh, Martins and Amokachi, all the greats, right? regardless of even the position, we first need to first be realistic about where we are in terms of development. Aside from being realistic, we need significant investment in African grassroots football. And lastly, I think there needs to be a level of commitment from the actual players. Because the first thing's first, yes, the coaching has to improve. Coach education has to improve dramatically. But there was one thing I also wanted to say about the role of the number 10 and how it shifted. Great players would always play, regardless of the era. If you are great, for instance, Zidane was great then, he would be great today. Ronaldinho was great then, he would be great today. There would always, there would be space for them in any era, right? So the first thing's first is, the players here, they need to realize that you need to do more. All the great players, it was more than what their coaches did to them in the two or three hours they get to train during the week. They always did more. From Messi to Ronaldo to Zidane to Lampard to um, Okocha to every single one. So we need to get off right. our asses and do more. That's the very, very fundamental for us to get back to that level. It's not anything that someone like myself or Kojon is going to do. It's not anything that Solis is going to write about that is going to inspire anyone. It's, it starts with the player. So they need mm. to wake up and determine and say, I want to be great. And I'm going to pick up influences from wherever I can, whether that's from Okocha, whether that's from Koev, whether that's from Silva. And I'm going to determine to be great. Mm. And that's right. by training and developing themselves. Fantastic. Um, I, th I think we've talked about two positions then. Um, so let's get on to uh, the, um, the role which has seen Liverpool probably been, become the pride of European football or the, the darling of European football. Um, why is there an emphasis on, on 
attacking players now and as opposed to center forwards. It's one of the roles that has uh, come under uh, a bit of surgery as well. So you go back to uh, the the teams of the time past, you know, for example, you know, Portugal had Pauletta, you know, Argentina had Crespo and whatnot. Even in present-day football, a striker like Lukaku, as we saw as a deal in the Premier League, uh, United, you know, would find it hard to uh, fit into uh, many systems. Uh, coaches rather have attacking players. What what has that been down to? Sulis, I just... I just... Much I think it might be the Lukaku thing. But really, um, I think there's been an onus on coaches to get more creative with the interpretation of certain rules, especially the centre forward. Um, nowadays, most teams play with one centre forward and most um, most teams play with four with four defenders as two centre-backs. So ordinarily, you can have one centre-back take on the striker and the other centre-back sort of like covering. So that gives them very reasonable protection. But by having a centre-forward um, who doesn't engage with the um, with the centre-backs, but drops off into zones where the centre-back cannot follow, that creates a dilemma for them. It also allows attacking teams to gain a numerical advantage in the centre of the pitch in the midfield. So that helps their combinations coming forward and suddenly the defenders, the centre-backs have no one really to mark. And that's difficult for them because, you know, there's they need more concentration to keep the line. They have players who are coming at them from a deeper position who have picked up steam. So it's just, it's really about presenting a whole new set of challenges for our central defenders to face in modern football as far as I'm concerned. Shola, would you rather have a... A, a goal scorer that scores actual goals, uh, that or have an attacker in your team, say, um, Marcus Rashford, if you like. Uh, personally, I'm very open minded towards these kind of things, so I'm the kind of person that I rather have a quality player and mm. then I find out to adapt to whatever the player brings to the team. So, for mm. me, the important thing is, is this a quality player? If it's yes, I find a way to get him to fit in to my game idea. Uh, but So in terms of somebody like Lukaku, is a kind of my team, he's a good goal scorer. So as long as you can score goals, I think that's fine to a very large extent. There's not many center forwards that I'll say, okay, now maybe I can prefer this guy to having a Lukaku in my team. Mm. Uh, at the end of the day, the entire discussion around the evolution of positions, especially at this time, I think it's more about picking up things from other positions and then getting to do them as well. So defenders learning how to attack, attackers learning how to defend, center forwards learning how to play also like midfielders, be comfortable on the ball even in tight spaces. Uh, midfielders also learning how to make a lot of forward runs rather than just sitting in the middle expecting the ball to fit. So I think it's about learning from other positions. I feel like Lukaku has enough diversity in his game to still be relevant in any modern tactical system. So I'll put it to you then. Um, Firmino or Lukaku, as, as, as a goal scorer, you've got 10 positions sorted out in your team and you need a, you need a goal scorer, centre forward. Or you need I a centre forward. Answer, 
I'll give a political answer, but that's the truth. The answer is it depends. It depends on the profile of the mini ten players. That's the truth. So I won't pick a player in isolation. I'll pick him relative to what other qualities the other guys in my team have. So, for example, if I have two fast forward that are pace merchants, for example, I would like to have the third forward to be somebody that is technical, comfortable on the ball and can keep the ball for a while. Mm. I will not still try to look for a third pace merchant in that attack. I like to balance it up with a different profile. So, like I say, it depends on the context of the other player. Mm. Second, what would you rather have um, if you... I mean, in your coaching philosophy, what is what is the idea? Where do you stand on on coaches picking forward players as opposed to rudimentary positions, centre forwards, uh, the second strikers we used to know it back in the day? I think everyone on the inside joke. Uh, myself and Shola have this running debate. We've had this debate for years about the quality of uh, of Lukaku. Um, it's, a, it's an ongoing debate that we're still having this debate and I think this debate is going to be ongoing to look at um, <laughs> I think Poor guy. for me <laughs> I think for me uh, when you get to that level right and I'm sure Shola would agree with me the very basics a lot of players have the very basics they can pass they can run they can control they can shoot you know what stands out a lot of these players are very, very minute but significant details um, in terms of their mentality, in terms of their decision making. Because you see, you see a player that is, you see a player, someone like Milito, for instance, and you see another player, someone like Lukaku, for instance, and yeah. you look at these two players side by side, and you look at their physical attributes, and you look at their ability. Um, again, subjectively, some will argue one person has more physical ability over the other. But in terms of overall quality on display, it's without a doubt the amount of impact Milito had in that impacting. Um, so for me, of course, it's easy for us to pick and choose and say, oh, this player is better than this player, this player is better than that player. But at the end of the day, what Shola said is right. It depends on the team. It depends on all the other 10 players. It depends on the coach and how he adapts to get the best out of every single member of that team. And um, we evolve from there, you know. Mm. So that's, I'm on defense with Shola as well when I say uh, <laughs> it depends. Right. I think we're going to um, go on to the, the, the final positions, which I'm sure uh, all of us have a, a clear opinion on. Uh, fullbacks have been probably the most... Um, become the most important, one of the most important pieces of the team. Uh, obviously, goal scorers would always reign supreme and whatnot, but I wanted to talk about uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and um, before then, Danny Alves. And, you know, when you juxtapose a player like that, the profile of Danny Alves and, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold versus, let's say, a, a, a Gary Neville or a Javier Zanetti at the time, he used to play right back. Um, the emphasis, when, when, did that, when did that happen? that teams now would rather have a fullback who they can sacrifice a bit of his defensive uh, ability, so this. I think like Shola has pointed out um, earlier in the discussion, it really comes down to the quality of the players available. So um, for someone like Daniel Alves, who um, broke through at Sevilla, you could immediately see that um, 
kind of putting him into the grid of fullbacks, where typically fullbacks tended to go in a straight line, back, forward, back, forward. You could see that something like that would um, not exactly get the best out of him. So um, in that situation, it's all about creating a framework for the rest of the team wherein he can be accommodated. And increasingly, we see that, okay, people tend to copy what they, you know, what works as we, as we established earlier in discussions. So as more and more fullbacks um, develop, they see players like Alves and they figure, okay, this is what is possible for a fullback. The horizon has been broadened now. So um, we come to the present day and a player like Alexander Arnold, who, you know, doesn't, is, it almost seems like there's no limits to what he can do in possession. And, um, what we've seen from Liverpool over the past couple of seasons is constantly Jurgen Klopp is figuring out, okay, what's the best way in which I can channel what he can do, the full breadth of his abilities to the best um, for the uh, for the best performance from the team, really. So. Right. I think I think it's a solid opinion. Um, I mean, you go back to the the, the Spanish team, who I always feel a big reference point for. Um, a lot of the way uh, football is being played now. Um, Sergio Ramos as a fullback, would that be the ideal fullback for you? Uh, when he was a fullback, could defend, could 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 attack very well. Um, do we still have fullbacks like that? Is is there a lopsided uh, ability gauge if you uh, go across board? Because you look at a player like, for example, uh, Erwan Bissaka, Ashola, who can defend properly, but attacking output is not as much as you would naturally have. Oh, well, I think Sergio Ramos is a good template, but uh, maybe I would probably prefer actually Cole as an example. Right. Mm. I think maybe that's probably the best example I can find. Maybe that's personal preferences, though. But in terms of finding the balance between both offensive and defensive capacities of the fullback, I feel like I'm on... I would still say personally it depends. As long as the player is a good player, I will adapt. But that being said, are there players that are similar to that? I think Robertson will be the prime example now. I think Robertson is arguably the most balanced quality fullback. Boyga, Boyga points out uh, Ricardo Pereira at Leicester City also. Uh, I still feel like Ricardo is a bit... Uh, it tilts towards the offensive a bit more. He has a lot of, I think he has a lot of issues defensively. It's not bad, but it's not, it's not great either. But mm. I think Robertson yeah. is actually great at both. He's great mm. going forward. He's great defensively at the same time. We have maybe Trent on the other side, who I think is phenomenal going forward. Uh, defensively, it's not terrible, but there's one or two issues there as well. But at the mm. end of the day, I feel like guys like Roberto Carlos, guys like Marcelo, Guys like Danny Alves, guys like now Trent Alexander-Arnold, they are making the fullback position very glamorous. It's now, it used to be a position where I don't think there was anybody on the playground 15, 20 years ago that says, I volunteer to be fullback. Everybody wants to be the striker, the number 10. Maybe some still feel like, ah, centre-back or decent, defensively. Yeah, winger, decent. I don't think anybody would say I want to be the fullback. But now with this kind of guys, I feel like it's becoming a more glamorous position. Pep's use of Lam and Alabaz, inverted fullbacks. Everything is getting a lot more interesting for that position. And I think for now, in the 
current immediate modern game that's actually the most critical position in anything mm. that's interesting because uh, a couple of years ago the number 10 would have been the most critical position you know who's at number 10 and that would be the player everyone would be uh, talking about uh, in terms of uh, team selection. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're counting down to um, an hour, so it's about time we, uh, you know, put our final thoughts uh, in place. What, what would be the perfect team then uh, for you gentlemen? What would be the perfect team um, if we're going to make a team? And for practicality's sake, let's let's put a team on paper then. Uh, I'm going to take, we're going to take an opinion across board. I don't have an opinion. Uh, you are the experts. Um, who would be a goalkeeper, a perfect goalkeeper for you in the modern is day? Messi, is Messi and Ronaldo allowed? <laughs> no, we're not going to no, pick Messi and Ronaldo. No. I think an important question. No Messi, perfect no Ronaldo. <laughs> perfect, perfect goalkeeper for me in terms of uh, the modern goalkeeper. game would probably be Alisson. Yeah, that would, that would be my pick, really, because I feel like he has... Um, the perfect balance between being able to play with his feet and also being very good throwing the ball and uh, as well as making saves. I think he's really complete in that sense. Not Yano Black. I would have uh, imagined one of you would have gone for Yano Black. Anybody? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in the camp of... of um, I don't think that there's one player. I think Alison is a good shout. I think Oblak is an excellent yes. shout. I mean, we're looking at, at the finest margin, at the, at the top level, the margins are so slim. I remember, I think I, I told Shola this story. Sorry to divert a little bit. Go ahead, go for it. So I, I went to, I was in London and I was watching the Chelsea um, training and I was watching the goalkeepers. Um, back then, Chelsea had this young guy, um, I forget his name, this black guy. Uh, I don't know if you can remind me, Shola, if you know who I'm talking about. Um, forgotten. I remember the Jamal Blackman. Boy. Jamal Blackman. Okay, yeah, Blackman. It was Blackman, and it was um, the guy Begovic, and they had Courtois. And I was watching Blackman train. They were taking turns. I was like, wow, the quality here is impeccable. It doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get better than this. And then Begovic came up, and then you could see that. Wow. Okay. 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 No, I take that back. I take that back. There's another level. But then, you know, Dagovic and Courtois, the difference can't be that much. But then you see Courtois and you're like, gosh, when are we going to get here? But again, (laughs) it's all in the minute details. It's a split second faster. And I feel like that's where you can now pit and say, okay, Alisson, yes, might be better on his feet, but then Oblak is an incredible Shot stopper. His reflexes are like <laughs> sometimes we watch it and we're like, no, come on, stop it, come on, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's almost impossible to pick and choose. If anything, I would have the two of them, one person on the bench, one person starting. I guess. <laughs> right. So um, in can terms we of feel, the... can we field two goalkeepers? <laughs> By any chance? Is that... No, we can. <laughs> in terms of the evolution of that role of the goalkeeper, um, the passing out from the back, um, being composed under pressure. Um, Solis went for um, Alisson, who I think has got great handling. You know, his his um, his ability to just control the area is just, it's just incredible. I think Yano Black is a fantastic shot stopper. Uh, however, I think his reflexes are not as, I don't think as uh, 
as supreme as David De Gea um, on on a good day. But I mean, you both have picked the different goalkeepers. Uh, who who do we settle for then? My sentiment is going to push me towards Alisson, but like Coach Chego rightly mentions, at that stage, anybody is fine. To be honest, at the highest level, Alisson, Testegen, Jano Black, either one of these three of them is fine. Right, fantastic. So I think we just have to uh, pick Alison then. As a fullback, uh, Trent uh, might have today uh, for his uh, uh, fantastic performances. If we pick him, then we're saying that the evolution of that role has uh, ultimately um, seen fullbacks. Obviously, the emphasis is on getting forward and maybe running the game from right back. It's the biggest credit I give to Trent. You know, uh, how can a right back run a football game? You know, from his position. Um, is, is Trent the unanimous uh, opinion of everybody? Probably. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate, right? And <laughs> I, I'm sure Shola was expecting this, but I won't go with Trent. Um, the reason I won't go with Trent is I think Trent is an exceptional player and I think he's an exceptional player for a lot of specific teams. Again, this is a controversial subjective opinion, but I think having someone like Trent in your team is a huge plus, but is a plus that can only be a plus if it complements the entire system, right? Um, so for me, I would pick someone who isn't at the peak of his career, but as always been one of my all-time favorite um, right backs to watch um, is Aspley Quetta at Chelsea. I, 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 cannot, I couldn't argue with that. I, I think Aspley Quetta <laughs> is, is a fantastic balance. Um, as, 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 as fantastic as a balance as a fullback can be. Um, who, would you, who would you rather have a fullback then, a right back, uh, Solis? Well, this is this is a difficult one to be honest. There uh, is a case for Ricardo Pereira, yeah. Yeah, Ricardo Pereira is a really good is a really good fullback. He racks up a lot of defensive actions and all that. So, yeah, he's a good shout. Um, since this is such an on the spot thing, I'm going to go with the personal preference. And yes, I agree um, with Coach Egun that this has a lot to do with how the rest of the team is set up. But um, I have a huge a uh, soft spot for Ashraf Hakimi at Borussia Dortmund, who is admittedly problematic defensively in that he's still very young and in terms of his positioning while defending, he leaves a lot to be desired. But but I think going forward in terms of attacking, he just does so much with his movement of the ball, his positioning, his his passing is exceptional, his crossing too. I think he's. I think in a couple of years we're going to be talking about him in that same breath as one of the finest fullbacks in world football. Um, Boyga says uh, Hakim is an attacker. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you could rather <laughs> uh, rather have him uh, somewhere else. But just to Boyga for uh, staying with us all through. We're counting down to um, the end of the broadcast. It was just over an hour mark. The left back, I think, uh, would probably be someone like uh, Andy Robertson. Is he is he a perfect? Going forward and uh, defending fullback. I was going to say my pick for left back would actually be um, David Alaba. To be honest, uh, I think if previously one might have thought of him as 
is purely an attacking sort of player. But um, I think over the last couple of seasons, he's really shown that defensively too, he can more than hold his own. In terms of um, the physicality of the role, he stacks up really well. He's fast and he reads the game impeccably. So I think he's a really good shout for left back for me. Mm. I would have thought that somebody would have mentioned um, Joshua Kimmich, but nowadays he plays in midfield. <laughs> so um, Sulis uh, thinks at left back, uh, he would go for Alaba. There's also a bit of that problem with Kimmich with uh, Alaba at the same time. I think Kimmich has had games this season as right back and midfield, but similar to Alaba, he's also played left back and he's also played centre backs on occasion. Uh, there have been games where Bayern Munich have played with Alfonso so Davis as the left back yeah. in a good number of games. Yeah, so that's I'm, I'm, I'm for those two yeah. players, <laughs> for those two players, there's no clear, definite position. Although I think both of them are great shouts as well. Left back, I think I'll pick Robertson. Is the balance is good. Another good shout is Mendy at Real Madrid. I think he has been phenomenal this season. Very, very strong. Uh, Chilwell started the season a bit good, but it seems to be Has tailing off a bit. Off. That's yeah, what yeah, I think yeah, is yeah. really good. Chilwell is really good. Yeah. Well, yeah. all in all, I think I'll pick Robertson. Uh, Robertson, uh, then. So, so Robertson for Shola, um, Alaba for Solis. You've got to settle it for us. Shego. Yeah, I, I, would, I would go with Robertson. I think Robertson is, is an exceptional shout. And I have question marks over Chiwo, but again, let me. We've got to pick the centre-backs as a pair and before as we, as we speed it up. Um, pair of centre-backs, who do, you, who do you go for? Let's start with Shagun then. Yo, this is tough. Um, for <laughs> me, the most important centre-back right now, for me, for sure, has to be Virgil van Dijk. Um, the impact he has had at Liverpool has been drastic. So I would go with someone like Virgil van Dijk and who would I partner him with? Again, this might seem off, I don't know, but for me, Virgil van Dijk, Ramos, just to be quick. Mm. Ramos, the experience, the ability to be decisive in very, very key moments, I think is, is impressive. And yes, there are question marks over his defending sometimes, but then the leadership and drive he brings to the team is something that I I personally admire. So Ramos and Van Dijk then. Solis? Uh, I, I can't argue with those, with those picks at all. I, I think I think as Sergio Ramos has gotten to know that there's a tendency for people to forget how genuinely great of a defender he is. And of course, there's all the other stuff that comes with it, the red cards and the, uh, the tattoos and everything. But he's a genuinely good defender. And I think that's a very good balance with Van Dijk. You know, Ramos can be the more aggressive uh, physical of the two and Van Dyke with his um, peace and composure, kind of like a safety net behind. So, yeah. Shola? Uh, I will play devil's advocate also because I just like having one right-footed centre-back, one left-footed centre-back. So, I'll go with Laporte and one of Van Dyke and Ramos. So, who would it be then? I don't know. <laughs> I, I I wish you be here told us he was going to do this because this is this is more hard, much is more difficult than it looks to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it is. Right. Um, we're going to move on to the central midfield positions then, and I think we've got to pick them as as a, a trident or 
as a you know quadruple uh, a quartet. So are, like. are we going four three three? Is that the system we are looking at? What should we What should we go for then? I'm fine either way. I'm just I'm just saying. Four three three is the most uh, probably the most dominant system now. So let's, what do you think? I think four three three is fine. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I think it's fine really. So yeah. go ahead. Give us your pick then. Ah, okay, on the spot again. Um, my pick for four three three, I think would would have to include um, Fabinho, who is a player I really like. I think since he got back from his injury, there's been a bit of a drop in his performance levels. Well, before then, he was genuinely one of the top defensive midfielders in in modern football. So yeah, he gets in. Um, you have to pick. You have to pick Kevin De Bruyne, of course, because why not? I mean, (laughs) this is a player who can do can do everything, and he's he's shown his adaptability um, with Man City this season, and he's just taking the midfield game to a whole other level. Uh, The third the third spot, I I don't I don't know that I have the particular standout candidate for that one. To be honest, what what do you guys think? Can can is very hard. Can't they not have a shout? It's really hard. I actually I'm seeing like seven names here and it's confusing the hell out of me. Uh but just to mention three quick names: Kante, Tiago Alcantara, and Verratti or Kevin De Bruyne. <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne. Kante, Kevin De Bruyne, Tiago Alcantara. So that's two not in a different direction entirely. Check I could ahead. have given you. I could have given you the last tips if you woke me up for my sleep. Give me the last three minutes. I go contest. Um, first of all, I feel like any any coach right now would would kill for someone like Kante in that team. So for sure, Kante has to be there. I think um, having someone that can do what he does, I think is without a shadow of a doubt, like, it's so, so important. Um, I'm going to go a different direction. Yes, I admit, Verratti, De Bruyne, they're exceptional players. But, I, again, I'm sure this will come as a shock to someone like Shola, but the player that I would <laughs> put is Busquets in the DMO. I think Busquets has been so, so important in the last few years. Um, again, Busquets is not a player I personally have, and that's why I, I know Shola for a fact will be like that. <laughs> but I admit that the importance he has had in recent seasons has been phenomenal. And the second, <laughs> my third choice in this field, again, I, I would give it to Henderson. Um, the reason why I choose Henderson, right, is not just because of um, because of his actual quality. Um, and shout out to Milner as well. As a coach, it's a delight to see players that can evolve themselves and get the best out of themselves under different coaches. And Anderson is someone that's really impressed me in the last few years because, again, it's very similar to Ramos where he has made himself such an important part of a very, very, very great side. Right. And, and that's why I give him the nod over even De Bruyne. Uh, boy, guys, asking just uh, uh, if this is an EPL eleven. <laughs> 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 well, um, to refer to Shola, Shola picked uh, Thiago Alcantara, who plays in Germany. 
Um, so I think um, we we all got to and Ramos, Busquets is in Spain and Ramos. So yeah, Shola, um, Black, that's, that, that's your response. So I think Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Kante uh, both made uh, many teams. I'm sure um, we would find somebody uh, else to to put in there. Uh, center forward positions, the uh, forwards as we call them nowadays. Um, do we do we do we have a space for a player like Lukaku? <laughs> <laughs> is Neymar allowed? Because I don't know if we are counseling Messi or not. I don't think Neymar should be eligible as well. I think it's that's that's that's, that's actually a very good point. That's a really good point. Can, can I say something? Can I say something? I think it's unfair for us to leave out Messi and Ronaldo because <laughs> I think what I think once you include Messi and Messi yeah. and Ronaldo, that just makes it too easy. That just makes everybody, it. Everybody. That just makes the front it. three is Ronaldo, Messi, <laughs> Neymar. Of course. If, if, but, okay, thank but, you. We're done. Yes. But, but, it has, but no, I'm sorry. It has to be. It has to be. Because, you know, if we take away those three that they stood out and they are clearly, and when I say clearly, they are clearly by, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that in terms of world football right now, they have created their own, well, category. we have Messi and Ronaldo that they're in their own category. And then we have Neymar catching up um because when you look at everyone else you can we we can argue for days and we can talk about um aguero we can talk about lewandowski we can talk about uh, there are so many other players that i feel like why do that to ourselves and just take the easy way out and say we know who the front three is <laughs> so guys you you would you would pick neymar over lewandowski definitely Fantastic. also because of position i mean i'd rather put messi or ronaldo in the nine position Right. <laughs> I think it's been um, it's been it's been a conversation that has has had a life of its own. I, I wanted to um, you know go through a lot of positions and uh, try and decipher what the reason behind the evolution of those systems and the, the positions. But to hear your opinions have been has been very very insightful. And I must say, you know, there is clearly a very strong uh, depth in in the opinions. And hopefully, uh, you coaches in African football can, you know, drive that knowledge into spotting some of the uh, the next generation of, of top of top footballers. 